this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. Adam Weisbart is back. Adam, say hi to everyone. Hey, everyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're going to be talking about value and understanding stakeholders and going through all that. But before we do that, I'm going to offer Adam a chance to introduce himself and give a quick plug to the upcoming Agile Virtual Summit. Sure. I'm Adam Weisbart. I'm a certified scrum trainer, but since the pandemic started, I've been doing a bunch of other stuff besides my training and coaching like, like Dave does. Uh, I've got the Agile Virtual Summit where we host several events a year, including our big one in June, but we've got one coming up in October. That's this month currently happening, and it's on October 14th. We've got seven sessions with a keynote, one of the seven sessions, a keynote by Jim Benson, author of Personal Kanban co-author of Personal Kanban and uh, co-creator of Lean Coffee. He'll be doing uh, a session. We got six other fantastic sessions, including some stuff on remote facilitation and holding space in this virtual world in which we are all just pixels. Um, so I'm super excited about that. Uh, I don't know. What else do I do? In my spare time, I keep my house from flooding again, I guess, is what <laughs> I've been doing. Yes, Adam's <laughs> been enjoying some opportunities to work on plumbing and restructuring of his home recently. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. that's going to be a dark topic. I don't want to go into that one. I want to be Let's happy. Let's not talk about that. Let's I, not do wanna, talk about that. I do want to mention one thing about the, the summit. So um, anybody who's taken a class with me knows that I'm a massive fan of Jim Benson and the work that he and Tony Ann do. Um, so I would encourage you to check that out. And Richard Cheng is also going to be talking about product ownership. Richard is a, a great guy. He's been on this podcast a bunch as well. Um, it's the, the virtual summit should be great. So definitely check it out. Um, we'll talk more about it at the end. But right now we're going to get into the main topic, which is a question that keeps coming up in class. Maybe a question that I have. Um, I get a lot of students who come in and when we talk about value, they don't know how the company decides what's valuable. And there doesn't seem to be any way for them to figure that out. And when I ask them, do you understand how your stakeholders decide what's valuable? They don't know. And so that's sort of like, for me, a massive crack in the foundation of everything that we're talking about doing. So um, I wanted to kind of see what Adam has to say about it. Maybe we can talk about this and go back and forth a little bit. So do you run into yeah. that, first of all? All the time. Uh, folks come to a course or I'm doing coaching and they just expect Scrum is somehow going to tell them uh, how to figure this out. And Scrum specifically, it doesn't tell you anything about it, right? It just assumes you have a good product backlog. To have a good product backlog, you have to have a good understanding of what your customers want, like what problem you're solving for them. Um, so Scrum doesn't do anything for you uh, to that end. And so, yeah, I think this is super common. I, I think in most organizations, and I don't know, maybe you have an opinion on this too, but like, I think the way this gets decided in most organizations is some important person yells the loudest about what's really yeah. important to their customers. <laughs> I think right? that's true. I think that's definitely true. I also think, to me, there's two sides of it. There's that, it's whoever's yelling the loudest, coupled with the fact that most people, I think, do not take the time to, to look at value from different sort of levels. Like for me, if I'm, whether I'm a, if I'm a team member, there's certain things that are valuable to me, certain types of work or backlog items that are more valuable to me than others because I'll learn from them or I want to do them or I don't want to do them. If I'm a product owner, there's things that are valuable to me, but there's also things that are valuable to me, keeping my job, performing better at the company, 
There's things that are valuable to the customer, things that are valuable to certain executives more than others, to the company as a whole. I mean, value is not like a one answer question. Sure. Yeah. And then if if a lot of the val- quote unquote value, you can't see my air quotes, but uh, the, the value that you're delivering is, um, hey, we have higher velocity than we did last sprint, right? If that is the perceived value of your team, we're cranking out more things, whether or not they're the right things. Yeah. Um, then you go sort of even further, further down that, uh, route yeah. into that trap. Yeah. Um, so what I like helping teams do with their product owners. So if I was rather, if I was a product owner for a team, um, the first thing I would want to do is get out of the position where all important stakeholders talk one-on-one with me and make their case for the thing that is really important. Uh, I think this is true whether you're creating a backlog or just trying to gain alignment on a topic. Doing it one-on-one is a really poor way to do that because then the messenger they get to kill is you, right? right? If everyone comes to you with their important thing and stakeholder A has a really important feature and stakeholder B from their perspective has something they think is really important and stakeholder C, et cetera. Now you are the person who has to decide how to order this backlog. Um, and you also have to decide if those things are very valuable. Um, and this is a hard spot to be in. So the first thing I want to do is get those three stakeholders with me and maybe some other folks um, to talk about these features that they find uh, important and make their case for why those things are important. So I want to do that with the stakeholders in the same room. I don't want to be like a proxy for them having this conversation. Now, do you, as a product do you, owner, go ahead. I, I yeah. want to interrupt you for a second and ask a couple questions. Do you, if you're the PO in that scenario, and you've got three stakeholders and there's no evidence of alignment on what is more valuable than something else. Do you care how they figure out what valuable is or do you care what valuable is at all? Or is it more about there just needs to be an answer? We just need the compass to point in any direction. Um, The first thing I want to do is see if we can gain some alignment between the parties. Mm -hmm. Then as product owner, I want to take whatever, let's say we we were able to decide which one of these things appears to be most important to us. Yeah. Uh, once we've done that, then I, as product owner, want to figure out if that's actually a thing the market wants or just these three stakeholders want. Okay, so you're going to test their, their assumptions. Yes. Okay. Otherwise, why am I a product owner? I'm just like taking orders, right? Well, Based yeah, on... Sadly, I think there's a lot of product owners in that situation, but yeah. Um, Certainly. Yeah. So do you think there's a, there's a part of me that feels like if the product owner has a technique for prioritization, like a specific way, not Moscow, like an actual way of weighing whether one thing's more valuable than another, if everyone knows how that works, then it should never be a surprise to anybody ever when their thing doesn't get put to the top of the list. Do you agree so with that? what's an what's an example? What would be an example of that? Just so it's less abstract. Like how, um, how are they doing? It could be here? it could be ROI, expected ROI, or expected um, reduction in calls to the call center, or customer acquisition, or anything like that. Anything that we can quantify. And yes, it's sort of a a guess, and somebody could make up a guess that makes theirs higher. But at least there's some sort of method of looking at two things and saying this appears to be able to move the needle further than the other thing but 
Until you build it, you don't know if that's true in that that's case, true. right? Right. So we, so I would want to have some mechanism for reconciliation, but I think most, I don't know. I think I've only run across two places that actually went back and kind of looked at what the expected ROI was and how true those things were, and then used that as a way of adjusting future estimates. Yeah. So I don't think this like answers the initial question, but sort of going down the the path that you're laying. A rabbit hole that I've opened before us. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) So um, (laughs) let's jump in. So what I would most certainly do, like let's let's say we're trying to figure out uh, if a feature uh, we we think you know eighty percent of our users are going to love this brand new feature. Mm-hmm. My first question to that team, if I was coaching them, is: Do you have any sort of usage metrics on your existing features? Right? Like, are you able to tell if we do this, we can you know get eighty um, percent more people using this feature? Most teams I ask that question of say, no, we currently no, have right. no way of doing that. Right, but somebody's um, so gut, I, somebody's stomach bacteria is telling them that that's the thing to chase. Yeah. So I would add to our backlog, we're going to start um, all new features will be built such that we can track usage on them. Right. So if, if that was something okay. that was important to us, that was our, our hypothesis that we could increase usage of this feature um, or get 80% of our, our uh, customers to use this feature. It's so important to them. Then I'd want to be able to answer that with um, everything we built. Right. So I'd start building instrumentation in for that. So we're, we're moving away from actually like we still have to guess up front down yeah. this rabbit hole you've taken us, um, but at least we can check now, which you'd be ahead of the game, I think, if you could actually check, because I'm, I'm not sure most places actually check. Okay. All right, we can climb out of the rabbit hole now. Okay. Back Oof. to our main topic. Yeah. <laughs> so you got um, these guys, you've got these, sorry, not guys, you've got these people in a room um, and you're trying to get them aligned. And how are you going to do that? Um, so I love, uh, I think maybe something I discovered from Chris Sims, a uh, fellow scrum trainer. Um, it's a variant of, oh, you can't say the word variant anymore, can you? It's a Why variation. It's just, it's too, it's too pandemic-y to me. Um, <laughs> wow. All I think about is comic books. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so, um, uh, it's my take on what I, I believe I learned from, from Chris. Hopefully I'm not misattributing it here, but, um, the business value estimation game that I think he put together, um, lets you do sort of relative weighting of these things, much as you would do with a, with story points for, um, a product backlog, not for business value, but for, you know, uh, uh, your estimates on these things. And, um, it is a collaborative game that is serious. The The outcome of playing this game is business value uh, uh, weightings for each one of these items. And the beautiful thing about it is it gets people having deeper conversations, um, just as you would in uh, with a team doing uh, backlog refinement when they're estimating uh, the work involved in stuff. Um, the process of, of going through this helps the stakeholders surface their assumptions you know, if someone's saying, you know, this is not valuable at, all, valuable at all, and somebody else is saying this is very valuable, they would have a conversation as to why that is the case. Um, and the answer they all come up together with is still subjective at this point, but at least right. there's alignment about how they got to that thing. And I think you'd be in a lot better spot, especially as a product owner. And then you can go test the owner. assumption. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So in this situation, I'm assuming that as the PO, you're kind of guiding them through this thing and whether it's a t-shirt sizing thing or like you just having them line them up from, you know, least valuable to most valuable. Um, they're having these conversations. You're capturing, are you, I'm assuming you're capturing the assumptions as things you're going to have to prioritize and figure out how to plan around so that you can figure out like which of these is the riskiest, which do we need to test first? Because that's part of your job too, right? There's a value to each assumption. Right, right. Okay. And there's probably some, if you are actually a product owner in your organization and you have, which would mean you have authority to say no to things, there's probably mm -hmm. some you could just straight up say no to at that point because you're the product owner, uh, regardless of, of who is in the room. Though, okay. to your point, many uh, product owners, maybe most, are unfortunately not in that position, even though they really should be, right? Do you think that that's a conversation that, a, I mean, this is a little bit off topic too, sorry, but um, that a PO should explicitly have with the stakeholders up front. Like I just sit them down in a room and say, look, before we go into this, I just want to have this conversation so I can make sure where I stand. My understanding of this role is that I have final authority over what goes in the box and when the box leaves a loading dock. Do you all agree with that? And even if you don't agree with me later on, I'm still the one that wins that argument. Yes. Okay. Maybe not in those words, maybe a little more delicately, but getting them all to align on your level of authority with respect to what we're going to ship, when we're going to ship, what the product becomes. And also yeah. your, your accountability for its performance, I would assume. Certainly. And if you want to take, um, you know, if that feels scary to you, which it very well could be. It should. <laughs> um, yeah. Y you, could, you could just read the definition, which is, is pretty short out of the Scrum Guide, right? Like, do you agree yeah. with this statement? Uh, and if they don't, now you're having a conversation about, are we doing Scrum? Not like, why don't you all trust me? Or anything like that. It's not personal, right? Like, are we as an organization following Scrum or are we doing something else? Because if we're doing something else, I would like to know what the rules are. Yeah. Um, and if it's, if you're not doing Scrum, that's okay, but you do want to get sure. clarity on your role and the boundaries of your role. Right. If you okay. thought you were doing Scrum, but the organization thought you were just doing what they told you to do, yeah. it'd probably be a problem at some point. I okay. <laughs> All right. So in Chris's um, game, they're, they're doing relative value estimation but there, it doesn't sound like there is still a formula here. Like ab absent of this room, I get new product backlog items all the time. How am mm -hmm. I going to weigh them against what we've just decided is valuable? Well, just like I would in backlog refinement, I'd get those stakeholders oh, okay. together again and have the same conversation. Like these are things that I am weighing. I will be the final arbiter of where these end up in the product backlog because I am product owner, but I would like your input on these things. You all have different views because you're all... You know, you all own different verticals or you're all in different parts of the business, but I'd like to have a conversation on these items up front um, so I can get more alignment on them and make a decision based on that, plus my other research and experiments and such. Okay, so at this point, these stakeholders, these executives, with their explanation, shared explanation of value is more like a suggestion for you as the PO you are still going to be making decisions that won't necessarily 100% all the time go along with them. But I'm assuming at that stage that your understanding of value has to be not just what do the stakeholders think, but what is the larger mission of the organization? What have we established as the goals we're trying to meet? 
and you're you're kind of aligning to that as well. Absolutely. And what do our customers actually want, right? So I I yeah. run some pesky experiments. Customers. Pesky customers with their <laughs> money. Um I would I would run some experiments uh around around that and you could look somewhere like um you could look for some lean startup approaches uh to doing that. Um and for example, uh, you know, one of my favorite, just because it feels subversive or something is the 404 test, uh, which is like, Hey, go, go and build the button for this feature that, uh, uh, you think you might add to your product, uh, build it into the interface. And, uh, that logging I mentioned to you earlier, make sure you have some logging hooked up to it. And then to some small subset of your current users, uh, display this button and see if anyone clicks on it. When they click on it, they'll get a 404. Like that part of your, you haven't built the feature. It doesn't work. Right. But if nobody clicks on it, don't spend any time building that thing that the VP told you to build. Like nobody wants that thing. Um, wow. Super inexpensive test, right? Um, okay. And is it super scientific? Like, is there some percentage you need to get of clicks? I don't know. Maybe some statistician has worked that out. But um, I don't I don't know what the, the number is. But if you get zero, I'm pretty sure you don't build that feature. You don't need to build um, it. You know, if you show it to a hundred thousand people and you get, you know, you keep it up for a, a day and you get a few hundred clicks, you might be interested in, in looking more into that feature. Um, okay. Luckily, or maybe not luckily, uh, unfortunately, like a lot of features we think are going to be amazing. Nobody ever clicks on. So yeah. it'd be better just to find that out for almost free. Okay. So that, and that's going to be something that is going to be a challenging conversation to have with the stakeholders, I mean, anyway, because I'm going to have to come back to, you know, this executive over here and say, listen, that thing that you were so sure about, you were dead wrong, buddy. Nobody even cared to click on it. Um, yeah. Well, well, here's the good thing about, about the, the game and getting them all to do this in the same room. And it doesn't really matter. I think what game you do to play this, um, you could probably invent your own, but the thing is you won't have to break this bad news to, each one of the stakeholders, they will do it to each other, right? That's like the the benefit of getting these important stakeholders in the same room as opposed to doing this one-on-one -on -one with you. They will make the argument yeah. for why this feature is not actually important. When you do it one-on-one, -on -one, they just tell you how important their own feature is and, and only you can refute them if you're in the room. Okay. Um, and uh, because of the power imbalance often, this is next to impossible. Yeah. Um, but if they're telling each other why like your feature is not as important as my feature, and in fact, I don't think anyone will use it, um, they get to have this conversation. It's not you. Okay. That, that's sort of kind of going towards one of the questions I was going to ask in a minute, which is, um, even if I have clarity on how we're defining value, I don't want to lose my job. That's valuable to me. And that's sort of why I brought up that thing about different layers of value earlier, because um, there's certain executives I want to curry favor with, the same with my team. There's certain ones that I'm more scared of than others. Um, if I can have this conversation about instrumentation and get them all to agree to go along for the ride, like, you know, we're going to test things this way. Um, and you'll still get to make the decision, but I'm going to bring you the evidence. Then you can be the person as the PO is going in and saying, yeah, we showed this to 200,000 people and five people clicked on it. Is it really worth spending X amount of dollars to build the thing behind it? Um, and I would think some of the time there's going to be somebody who's just going to say, you know, yes, we need that anyway. But 
it does it might take some of the sting away from saying no because you don't have to say no anymore you're just saying look here's the options what do you want to do here's the data i guess right. it depends what is important to you personally right like okay to me it sounds like i'm not actually the product owner like i don't get to make decisions mhm yeah um which i suppose if my like my main driver was keeping my job at any cost then i i guess uh well if you're somebody who's earlier on in the in the game of being a po like i'm thinking sure. about the po's that are still struggling with figuring out how to say no to people that are you know that far up the food chain when they're in that this the situation where they don't have the they don't feel they have the agency to be able to yeah. say no i'm the po we agreed this is my job yeah this is a soft way of like no one wants this do you still really yeah. need it <laughs> and if they say so, yes then that teaches you something about you know whether or not you, you make a decision i'm going to stay here i don't want to stay here yeah so this this brings to mind something um that we were just talking about in lisa adkins uh, program that i'm hosting in agile mastery uh it's the 10-year anniversary of her of her book coaching agile teams and so we have a cohort of like 260 people going through uh, this program together. It's a 12 week program. And, uh, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, where, uh, this fits really nicely with the, uh, sort of, of taking a scrum guide to your stakeholders and saying, do we agree on the definition of a product owner? Right. Yeah. If yeah. they say yes, if they say yes, you could still very easily end up in the position where you have to deliver bad news and you don't want to, especially as a new product owner. Yeah. Um, but what Lisa's coaching around this was, and I'm paraphrasing, so I apologize if I if I get a little wrong here. So now that we're aligned on the role of the product owner of my role, um, when we disagree on a feature, how are we going to handle that together? Like, how would you like to hear from me that we are going in the wrong direction? Right, giving them the invitation and sort of the framing of how I'm going to bring you the bad news yeah. that you are not doing what you agreed to do when we had this conversation now. Yeah. Right. Like we had it now, but it's going to happen down the road. Yeah. Um, and have that conversation with them. Like, and, and perhaps they will give you the perfect phrasing they need to hear, or at least you will have had that conversation before you have to do it. Right. Yeah. Um, they're buying into it up front to make it a bit less scary. Um, still, I suspect quite, scary depending on who they are in the organization but um when i think about the job of the product owner yes everything you said about the customer is true we have to deliver value for the customer but at the same time when you're the product owner the team is your customer and so is the company and so are the stakeholders within the company so i think you have to be monitoring your alignment to what perceptions of value are at all those different levels and that's why this job is so challenging and it's also so much fun You've got to find the best mix, you know, to get the needle to move as far as you can. Um, so it's not easy, but though. Do you, but do you think you should be building a feature that an important person in the organization says should be built, but you know, as product owner, is not something the market wants? I think if the answer to that was no, then Apple wouldn't exist because they build a bunch of stuff that there was no evidence that people wanted that were needed, but then we got it and we're like, oh crap, I totally need a walkie talkie in my watch. 
Oh, but I think that's good product ownership. I'm not saying only build stuff your customers want. Oh, okay. Um, I'm saying someone uh, farther removed from, and and maybe this is not true in 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 sort of the the organizations you're thinking about. But in okay. my experience, someone with lots of opinions that are based on gut feel from them that don't actually have to do with uh, talking to customers, yeah. uh, user research, et cetera, comes in and says, I want that button to be blue, even though there's like no, no, um, no reason. Yeah. No reason. Right. Uh, in your example of Apple, right? Like uh, uh, Jobs was absolutely brilliant at figuring out what Where the people were. wanted, even though they yeah. didn't know it right so i'm not like that's fantastic product ownership okay. um so i'm i'm suggesting it, it, as a good product owner would you build something that someone who is more removed that is higher up on the org chart is insisting you build or would you or would you say no i think if i was a really confident product owner my response would be can we test this or, or i would i would want to test it before we build it so right. find some way of validating it i think yeah. there are probably a lot of product owners out there who are doing a dance where there's some stuff they feel like they have to build i had a class a whole class full of people last week who told me we have no ability to decide what we're going to be building sure we are given contracts we are told what to build and that is our job right Right. Which is a and, sad world to live in, I think, if you're a product owner. If you can't well, and then often that. we we have this situation where you've got the product owner, and then you've got a product manager above them. Yeah, right. So it was some traditional organization that decided this agile thing would be a good idea and misunderstood the role of the product owner, and you know maybe changed a bunch of their previous PMs or something into uh, yeah product owners, but they still have a product manager who makes more sort of product ownership decisions. So. If you, we can kind of wrap it up in a minute, but I want to cover this one last thing before we do. If you meet somebody who's a PO and they don't have a sense of value, you're suggesting get the stakeholders into a room, um, run them through this exercise, and that's going to be a continual thing. Correct. Okay. Because you just made your job easier as to, especially if you're new, as to what things you need to spend more time uh, researching and figuring out, because some of these things are now going to get removed or demoted it in the backlog, right? Yeah. Just because these important stakeholders have done that for themselves. Okay. Right? They got more alignment as an organization about what they thought was important. Yeah. And now you have fewer things to go and validate. Um, and you're probably surfacing where there is a bunch of tension already in the organization, and it would be better that people saw it as a thing that was not you. Um, it is a thing that was already inherent in the system, and you are now helping uncover it so you can gain more alignment on those things. Yeah, I think. I mean, to me, it's it's a really great mechanism. I, the part, the reason I wanted to ask about it again is because when you initially explained it, I wasn't thinking of it as saying to the stakeholders, we're going to be doing this on a recurring basis. I was thinking it was like a one and done thing. And I was going to uh, be able to like understand, like see the pattern and say like, well, this is how we decide so that I could, I, I'm always saying to people like, if you know it's ROI or if you know whatever it is, then you can make the decision. But this is another place where a PO can unburden themselves of a lot of the risk they carry around. Right. Let the stakeholders show what they think is valuable. And then the PO's 
job is, okay, I'm going to go test this and we're going to make sure. You're almost yeah. QAing their decisions about what they think is valuable. Right, right. Okay. And with, with you know, folks really high up in the organization, you're doing this with very large items, you know, maybe even initiatives. And yeah. with people lower down in the organization, you're doing more granular stuff, right? Because uh, um, leaders in the organization will be concerned with in most cases, uh, like, you know, bigger picture things than sort of nuts and bolts things with yeah. clearly some, some exceptions, but. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate you going through this with me. No problem. I want to, I want to give another, give you another chance to plug the virtual summit, but before we do, I just want to check in with you on one thing about it. So this is a, you and a number of other people have been sort of making changes to how you reach folks and how, um, things have shifted since the pandemic started. Do you think this is where it's going to be? Are we done with in-person conferences? Is this going to be kind of like the model going forward? Are we done with, uh, I hope not. I kind of miss seeing people in person. Okay. Um, I do think that neither are going away, right? Like at some point we get to all be back in the same place together. That'll be lovely. Um, I do think, and I've heard from lots of people, especially outside of North America, who are like, I, I could never go to an event like this. Being able to do this now has been super valuable to me. Um, and so I think the the impact, like the reach is is much yeah. bigger. And so I, I don't think it'll go away because of that. The, the event actually on the 14th is a bite-sized event, right? It's just a three-hour event uh, with speakers and then an hour worth of... Um, uh, sort of activities, networking, et cetera, with other participants live on our platform. Okay. Uh, so you can go to as much as it as you like, but even if you went to the whole thing, it's only four hours, right? So um, this smaller one is great one because I think we're all a bit burnt out on being in front of Zoom all the time. Um, <laughs> but but we still get to connect with people as if we could go to to live events. So um, I think because it's so easy to go to virtual stuff, we'll continue to do that. Um, but I don't think it's replacing uh, in-person stuff. I hope not, I, I miss in-person stuff, but I think there will be a, a sort of blend of the things um, at some point in, in the future. I miss you know, in-person too, it's just so much easier to not wear anything but shorts every day and never leave my apartment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you have such a spacious, spacious apartment, yes. I understand. <laughs> um, you, this makes me think of, I just read an article before our, our, uh, our talk here that, so I live in, in, uh, on Vashon Island off of Seattle. So King County, the county in which I, I live, um, it has a, a bill in front of them trying to figure out, do they call it a bill? I don't know. Anyway, trying to figure out if, uh, moving forward, they're going to keep jury selection virtual because it means that, um, when you get called up for a jury, you don't have to miss a day of work. You don't have to find childcare. Um, you can do this all from, you know, whatever wow. Zoom or whatnot they have. And so um, uh, I don't know about you, but like I'm I'm glad to do my civic duty. But when you've got to like show up for uh, selection and then come back the next day and then you got to be there potentially all week and yeah. then you don't get on the jury you're like oh couldn't i have just done that from home apparently they're trying to make it so you can uh do it from home so um cool. i think it's you know going to change how we do lots of things but are we not going back to the other stuff i uh, it seems unlikely that we won't go back to in person there's a lot of okay. 
benefit. Maybe we'll find the good things and carry them forward and it'll find ways we can save ourselves some hassle. Here's hoping. I'm all for it. (laughs) Learn something good out of this pandemic. All right. So people Um, can attend this for free, right? Yeah, it's free. So they go to agilevirtualsummit.com. They type in their name and their email address, and they get to attend the whole thing uh, live for free. If they want to watch replays, if they want some bonuses and such, they can upgrade when they sign up to a paid pass. Uh, The paid pass gets them uh, access to... Uh, to that content and the bonuses and such um if they can't attend all the sessions or they just want to be able to watch replays and actually cool. you would not be able to attend all the sessions for the bite size thing because some of them are happening at the same time same so you have time. to make hard decisions about you know if you're going to go see uh, uh yeah missy richard or someone <laughs> else who knows or someone better <laughs> than richard um all right so no richard's awesome i <laughs> Thank you for making time for this. I want to encourage everybody to go check it out, especially because Jim Benson is such an influential person in the way that I look at work. I'm grateful for everything that man does. Um, And thank you for putting it on and thank you for taking time for this interview. Thanks for having me. It was great to uh, hear you. I was going to say see you, but I can't see you right now. To hear you. (laughs) Yes, excellent. Cool. Thanks, man. Thank you. Sunglasses